0: Meanwhile, the rest of us will turn to Luke chapter 13. This is good doing it this way because if we take the, the uh, offering after the message, then it can be a reflection of how good the message was. <laughs> That's why we always take it before the message. <laughs> Jesus is going to reveal to us the kingdom of of God, what it is like, and our passage ought to be inspiring to those who wish to enter. It ought to be incredibly encouraging to us, to we who have already entered, and as you find your place, I should make a comment that the kingdom of God, uh, Matthew prefers the phrase kingdom of heaven, as as he uses in his gospel, but uh, regardless of what nuances may exist, there are several places where... The scriptures use those two phrases interchangeably. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. For our purposes, it should be sufficient to assert that the idea of of a kingdom refers to a realm. A realm where a king uh, reigns over it. Both today and in the future. We know that God's kingdom already exists. Because Colossians assures believers that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Um, At the same time, there are future aspects of this kingdom that we're taught about in Scripture that aren't yet observed or experienced. Uh, But where the kingdom is, we know this. God reigns over his kingdom. And Jesus, he he enjoyed describing the kingdom of God uh, using similes. He loved talking about the kingdom of God. Of course, it's his kingdom. And in Matthew, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like finding one pearl of great price. That's Matthew 13, verse 46. Therefore, the the kingdom of God is so invaluable, worth so much, that it would be wise to sell everything that you own in order to enter. Whatever you've got to do, pay the ticket to get in there. Fortunately, someone's already paid that price, as we sang about earlier. In Matthew 13, verse 24, Jesus compares kingdom to being like a field. A field where the tares grow along, that is the weeds, the tares grow along with the wheat until harvest where there's a final separation. Therefore, we know that ultimately the kingdom of God will be a place where only righteousness dwells. Only righteousness. No ungodliness may enter. So, If you are yearning, if you are longing for a place of honesty, of decency, that place is the kingdom of God. Currently, that kingdom is manifest in Christ's church as believers patiently wait the the full manifestation of God's kingdom. You know, all churches, we'll talk about this a little bit today, now and later, all churches have tares. Some are overrun by weeds. And even we who are regenerated by God's Spirit, we still battle against the flesh. But at least we battle. At least we battle. And in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, the Apostle Paul assures that we are cleansing ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness holiness. That's a process that we are in. Admittedly, we're not perfectly there yet, but we're in process. But if you want to if you want a place where you can have friends that will not steal from you, friends who will not lie to you, friends who will not cheat you either out of your possessions or out of your spouse, the kingdom of God is the place. The church of God is that place. It's where you will find people in God's kingdom. So our plea uh, to everyone here our our plea to you as a church body, a church family, a local manifestation of God's kingdom in this place and time. Uh, our plea to you is that of the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. <laughs> we corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Amen. We are here to serve, to enrich, to edify. That's why the church of God is here on earth. Churches have gotten a bad rap, a bad rap from some, uh, some churches. Quote, put in quotes there, some churches um, have been commandeered by the enemy. There, there's always need for caution and discernment. But I previously resided in the domain of darkness myself. I don't know about you if you remember that. There's nothing better than being in the kingdom of God. Being with the people of God, where you'll meet the people who are the most honest, the most decent that you can find in his church. So thine is the kingdom where holiness and righteousness dwells. God's kingdom is also a domain of love. When a scribe in Mark chapter 12 said to Jesus, That to love God with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself, that is more than all sacrifices, all burnt offerings. Jesus, seeing that he intelligently answered about love of God and love of neighbor, said, well, you aren't far from the kingdom." The kingdom is valuable, it is moral, it's honorable, it's full of kindness and gentleness and mercy and love. Why? Because it's God's kingdom. And thine is the kingdom. It belongs to him. God is the king. He rules over it. And his greatness, his goodness is displayed in his kingdom. But it didn't appear all that impressive in Jesus' day. With Jesus traveled a small band of men and women, predominantly Galilean, following a man increasingly being scorned and rejected by the ruling establishment, the religious establishment, and the people themselves. Most of the crowds who assembled, they did so out of selfish motives. They wanted to be fed with bread and they wanted to be healed. But each time Christ called them to a... Increased commitment, a, a further commitment to him, they dispersed. Quickly. It's almost like turning on the light if you have a roach in the corner. Gone. Gone. And then Jesus, with his relatively small band of disciples, he'd be left behind to carry on the ministry it's always been that way. Christian ministry can be incredibly discouraging if you did not know. Um, sometimes the visible results, they're sometimes non-existent. So one thing Jesus is preparing his disciples for in these par- parables is perseverance. Perseverance in the kingdom. Scripture exposes how they, they were really hoping to become part of something really big in Jesus' day. Remember John and James want to sit on his right and on his left Prominence, prestige in the kingdom. Everybody wants prominence. Everybody seeks something great. Everyone looks to something bigger than themselves. Big kingdoms impress people. Size impresses people. And that's part of the reason of the success uh, of the megachurch movement. If you're familiar with that. The the huge church movement. People are easily drawn to something that, that visibly appears successful. Quickly drawn to that. Um, But until this point, what Jesus is doing, it hasn't significantly grown. He doesn't have a huge following. The group that follows him around is not really that impressive. And people are beginning to take notice. In fact, I wouldn't doubt that the lack of visible success and Jesus' comparatively paltry following Uh, is is what causes someone in Luke chapter 13, you've probably already turned there, and verse 23, which we'll get to next week, cause them to ask Jesus this question. Lord, are there just a few that are being saved? What a question. Almost three years of ministry now Jesus has gone through, and the question is, "Are, are there just a few? Have you ever asked that question? Some of the Old Testament prophets did. You're not alone. We're going to talk about that some next week. But there is a reason we have little to no mention made of Jesus in the ancient historians, apart from the Bible, uh, outside the Gospel writers. The fact is that, contrary to Alexander the Great, who conquered many civilizations, or even Julius Caesar, When it comes to a short three-year ministry, probably just short of three years, actually, probably not a complete full three years, Jesus' immediate impact was so small. It was so insignificant, the world didn't even take notice of it. The historic writers of his day didn't... It wasn't even a bleep on the radar. That's how small it was. And I would not doubt that even his disciples were taking notice, maybe even getting a little bit nervous about this kingdom so to calm his disciples jesus addresses the elephant in the room maybe i could say the mouse the mouse in the room christ says in luke 13 verse 18 there are a couple things about god's kingdom that you need to know about he was saying what is the kingdom of god like and to what shall i compare it It is like a mustard seed, which which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. The first characteristic of God's kingdom that Jesus mentions is that it is going to start very small. you going know, to start the size of a mustard seed. And in fact, you probably have heard already that the mustard seed was the smallest observable, visible to the naked eye, smallest seed of the garden in that day. And very, very small, but, but inside of that seed exists all of the genetic information, all of the DNA to become something large, to grow into a fully mature tree. But... But it is going to start really small. The other thing that we recognize about a mustard tree is that of all the trees, it's not visibly very impressive. I've got a photo for you here of a mustard tree thrown into a garden. Back in Texas, we would refer to that as a trash tree. Like the mesquites. They just kind of pop up. This one was thrown into the garden. Popped up. Um... If you insist on a little more glamorous appearance, we have one other photo here. That might look a little nicer. Sometimes you go online and, and some of the photos, because people know this uh, relates to the kingdom, they'll embellish the photos and make it really big, you know, and glamorous. But under normal conditions, it would grow only to about 15 feet tall. So it never becomes a Huge tree like a California redwood, nor does like a cedar, uh, nor does it become a, a stately tree. The kingdom of God will start very small, and even as it grows the world, the world's not going to be all that impressed by it. Yeah, so they're Christians. So what? What about this kingdom? What's so impressive about this kingdom? Not by power, not by might. But by my spirit, it is revealed to the human heart. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Man shall not boast. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, The kingdom of God, it doesn't look all that impressive. John Calvin wrote this, how haughtily the profane men despise the gospel and even turn it into ridicule because the ministers by whom it is preached are, are men of slender reputation and of low rank. Because it is not instantly received with applause by the whole world. And because the few disciples whom it does obtain are, for the most part, men of no weight or consideration and belong to the common people. Amen. Amen. We are but common people that God has chosen to show his mercy to the world. Um, we need to consider the inherent danger uh, with equating the kingdom of God with something that is really visibly uh, impressive to men, God's always doing something great in His kingdom, but the size of the building doesn't guarantee that is evidence of God's work. When the Zerubbabel was commissioned to rebuild God's temple in Jerusalem, once the foundation was finished, the foundation stones, there were Levites present, older Levites who had seen the previous temple, Solomon's temple, the first temple. And Ezra 3, verse 12 says they, they wept. They wept as they saw how much smaller the second temple was than the first temple. So the word of the God came through the prophet Haggai, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? That's Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. What they saw with their eyes convinced them that God wasn't doing something real impressive. Not like in the former days. Comparatively, it would be small, they thought, in their own minds, their finite minds. It would be small compared to what Solomon Achieved in his day it was, it was a small temple expansions to that temple be reminded didn't occur until much much later uh, under the the really ungodly king Herod he didn't do it for God's glory nor was he commissioned by God to do it he expanded it for his own glory it's why it's called Herod's temple he expanded this small temple But Haggai said, Take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all of you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Do not Fear. The prophet Haggai declares to Zerubbabel that God's spirit abides. It abides with you. He abides with you. It's to this same Zerubbabel, the same governor in our scripture reading earlier, to whom the prophet Zechariah said this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power. Those are human institutions he's talking about. Not by your might, Zerubbabel, not by your power, but by my spirit says the Lord. Zechariah 4 6. And to those who still had doubts about this, this physical side, uh, physical size of God's project. This physical project that they saw with their eyes. Zechariah said, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation, excuse me, the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? Right? Who despises the day of small beginnings? It was indeed comparatively small beginnings. But through Haggai, God promised this. The latter glory of this house meaning the one that Zerubbabel was building, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory through Solomon. Says the Lord of hosts, in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai 2 verse 9. The glory of this second temple of God promises to be even greater than the glory seen in the grand temple of Solomon, the first temple. God's glory, folks, is not measured by physical size. It's not by cubits. The glory of Solomon's temple, as great as it was, as grand as it was, only came when the presence of God entered that temple. Because Second Chronicles 5 verse 14 tells us, In the form of a visible cloud, the glory of the Lord filled that house. They celebrated. God had resided in his temple. The glory of the second temple, comparatively, was going to be really glorious. The latter and the smaller house built by Zerubbabel would have even greater glory. Because not only would the glory of the Lord fill the temple in a cloud, But 500 years later, the glory of God incarnate himself, Jesus Christ, would step up the steps and walk into the second temple. As the person of Christ, he entered the temple, and he, with a whip of cords, he cleansed it from all unrighteousness. The money changers, he cleansed the temple. And the world of false religion... You know, it'll be quickly impressed with the size of a building. But Christians, you know, were, we're much less impressed with the number of seats. There may be many. There may be comparatively few. But regardless of the grandeur of a building, Christians ask something as they enter that building. What they want to know is, is there any chance I'm going to run into Christ here today, right? Will I meet him? Here. Will I amongst these people, God's temple, encounter Christ and, and, and visibly see him reigning over his kingdom through these people? For the Apostle Paul instructed the pagan worshipers in Athens God, who made the world and all things in it, does not dwell in temples made with hands. But to Christians, Paul reminds us do you not know that you are a temple of God? and that the spirit of god dwells in you 1st corinthians 3 though that second temple in jerusalem it was leveled in 70 ad by the romans again raised to the ground god still has a home folks and christians enjoy the same promise made to solomon and zerubbabel God, by His Spirit, abides in His temple. It doesn't matter, folks, what the outside of the temple looks like. You may be tall, you may be short, you may be wide, you may be narrow, you may be black, you may be white, you may be male, you may be female. It does not matter what the outside looks like. It may be stately, it may be unimpressive to the eye. But regardless of how your outside looks, regardless of how the world looks on you, how they see you, if you are being called by His Word today, the Holy Spirit wants to take up residence in you. And by the blood of Christ, God will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, inside and out. Will you let Him? That is the question. Will you let him? Will you believe that Christ died on the cross to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? To cleanse your hearts? Will you receive Christ today? That is the question. Does someone here need to enter this kingdom we're talking about? There is a kingdom of God. Because God promises entrance to as many as will receive him. To all who call on his name, he gives the right to become children of God. God's kingdom began very small. It was a small seed. But there was great power of the gospel that we sang about earlier. The power of the cross within that seed to build an entire massive kingdom. A huge kingdom. And to Satan's dismay, the gates of hell can't withstand it. Surely can't overpower it. And the dwelling place of God in His church may not look like all that much from the outside. It might not be the prettiest thing that the world sees. But God determines the size, God determines what His kingdom looks like. It's His kingdom. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen? It's His kingdom. And it will continue to grow until he returns again. And his church continues to grow because none of his are ever lost. Uh, For this is the will of him who sent me, said Jesus, that all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, everyone who beholds the Son, everyone here today who beholds the Son, and believes in Him, will have eternal life. And Christ promises, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. It's the kingdom. For believers here today, you are God's temple. You are God's temple. The appearance may be a little humble, maybe a little chubby. But it's an incredible kingdom. An incredible kingdom. And it's the only thing that God has going is his kingdom. He's building a kingdom. I got to think if if you call yourself by Christ's name, why would you want to be be invested in anything else? It's a great kingdom. I I didn't script this, but I tell you I got to say there needs to be more people building God's kingdom. We need younger people stepping in to take the reins of the kingdom. to to usher in worshipers into the kingdom. It's, It's gotten so dry. So few young people want to enter into the ministry. You want to know why Pastor Weiler perseveres? Because he has his face and his mind set on the kingdom. He's going to serve the kingdom. How are people going to find the kingdom if we aren't showing them the kingdom? We need people... To buckle down and enter the ministry. To usher people into the kingdom. The birds of the air statement. Which most of your Bibles have printed in all capital letters. uh, That alerts you that this is an Old Testament um, citation. From something said in the Old Testament. Taken uh, This one taken from both the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel. It refers to... Babylon and Assyria and prophetically to Israel future Israel at that time uh, Babylon and Assyria they were mighty kingdoms mighty kingdoms in Ezekiel 31 Assyria is described as a beautiful stately cedar a tree admired by all meaning meaning Assyria was a mighty kingdom That that was a big kingdom So mighty, in fact, that in verse 6, Ezekiel writes that all of the birds of the heavens nested in its bows, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade, under the shade of Assyria. The kingdom of Assyria had had spread very large, was very strong, was very prosperous, that even great nations of the world, they, they nestled themselves under the branches of Assyria for safety. The same is said in Daniel chapter 4, describing the kingdom of Babylon, another great human kingdom. And as I said moments ago, it was also prophesied of Israel. Similar language. Assyria and Babylon of that age were the greatest of kingdoms. Parallel is obvious. The parallel is obvious. Everywhere the kingdom of God grows, nations and people grow have benefited nesting in its branches. It benefited from its branches. The mustard tree, it might not be very pretty. It might not be pretty, but every place the true church expands, the world has benefited enormously from it. The true church. The tree is God's kingdom, folks. The the birds aren't, aren't by nature part of the tree. The tree is the kingdom. The birds aren't part of the kingdom. They merely benefit from the presence of a kingdom. Follow me? Folks, the United States of America has benefited greatly from our charitable status as a church. That means how charitable the church behaves to the community surrounding it. Our charity if that is manifest some way through a hurricane, whether it is helping friends and neighbors with making a bill, whether it is feeding others, whether it is merely the social stability that comes with teaching morals, the truth, right from wrong, the gospel, peace among men, whatever it may be, a nation is blessed by the benevolent presence of God's kingdom expressed today in his church. Along with that, organizations considering themselves Christian, perhaps, quotes again, they deserve to rightly be critiqued for moral failure when they call themselves by Christ's name. But to scorn the presence of Christ's church To scorn the kingdom of God will curse a nation, folks. That will curse a nation to scorn the church of God. There, There exists no more compassionate organism in the world today or in society. The true church, true believers regenerated by the Holy Spirit not the fake stuff. The true church is the safest place on earth. You'll remember that as you hear people painting the church as not a good place. Scripturally, that is not accurate. That cannot be defended from the Bible at all. There's a lot of criticism being handed around out there today. But there are hundreds of thousands of churches in America alone. Hundreds of thousands in America alone today. Satan is at work. A few of those churches... A few are going to make the news. They will from time to time. But it's also necessary that we use discernment in selecting a church when participating in a church. But the church, Christ's church, isn't the problem. It's, It's the solution to our nation's problem. That is where our nation finds rest, in the branches of the church, the kingdom of God. Don't let folks convince you otherwise. I know many of you have been here a while. My favorite topic is ecclesiology, and that, that is the study of Christ's church and what it has done everywhere the gospel has gone. It is a, mar- a marvelous kingdom, a manifestation of God's kingdom. Some lament, you know, that the church enjoys a non-profit status. You'll hear that from time to time so do tens of thousands of other organizations in America. Car museums, goodwill, college fraternities, they're all non-ta- non-tax status, yet they, <laughs> they do comparatively little to improve society. So, so just remember, you know, when, when politicians or the IRS man... Uh, when they bemoan the tax-exempt status of churches, and to me, it really isn't going to make a difference. They talk about taking tax status from churches. I I think people just give more is what I think would happen. That's what I think would happen. I believe God's spirit would rise. But just remember when the IRS bemoans or or politicians bemoan these churches that are on tax-exempt status, be reminded that America doesn't find rest under the branches of Phi Beta Kappa. There are all kinds of non-taxable organizations out there that do very little to benefit society. The first characteristic of the kingdom, it's very small. It's going to continue to grow. It's not going to be impressive. But it's going to reach all nations according to Ezekiel. Birds of every kind are going to nest under its branches. It, It expands all the time. The second characteristic is the influence of the kingdom. It, this shouldn't take long. You folks are smart. You're going to get this right away. You recognize that leaven, even though it is something that is not seen, not to the naked eye, um, when it's mixed in a dough, it has an incredible influence on that dough, right? An Expansion on that dough, an effect on that dough. Leaven in the Bible is almost exclusively described, well it's not talking about Bread, exactly. But when it's talking about uh, leaven in the Bible, it's, it's referring to an influence of one kind or another. It can be a bad influence. As in immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, sexual immorality, you have to remove that leaven so that it doesn't influence the rest of the lump. It can refer to a bad influence. But here the kingdom of God is like leaven because it's a good influence. It's a good influence. If we consider the mustard tree as the visible church, things that we can see. We could probably refer to Levin as the invisible church. The invisible church is equally as important. Uh, St. Augustine wrote a book describing that. It's called The City of God. What you see physically doesn't always represent what you see or or what God is doing invisibly. And uh, we being little in faith, we, we are men of little faith just like Christ's disciples, women of little faith, Uh, we prefer to see with our eyes we like to see things with our eyes because that, that which is invisible it's a little harder to get excited about a little harder to get excited about but we must we must because like with the bread the leaven is present God has promised us his leaven is present for his kingdom and it's slowly accomplishing its work this can be difficult for a pastor Be difficult for all of us. But Hebrews eleven assures us that that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not yet seen, right? It's invisible. And, And without faith, we know it's impossible to please God. So so as Christians and as pastors, you and you and I don't always see immediate results. But we know God's invisible power. Is working. It is present in his word and the influence of the gospel is there. We know it is there. There is power in the kingdom, the power of the gospel, the power of the cross. If we don't believe this, if we don't truly believe that his word will will not go out without returning uh, with some effect, we know his word will not return void, if we don't truly believe that, it could come to the point where we start orchestrating results. Making things visible. Relying on things that draw men that are visible rather than the power of the gospel. The prosperity church is one of those examples. Make something that looks really, really prosperous to draw men. But if you lose the gospel in the meantime, you've lost the power and the influence. It's not God's kingdom. Many different manifestations of that. And, and adding to our challenge is how some churches, some, some very large churches, who are genuinely faithful to God's word, sometimes they have just outstanding visible results. I, I want to throw up a picture here. A manifestation of this. This is Denton Bible Church where, I, where Rita and I came from. An amazing work of God through the power of the Word of God. Um, Go to the next photo of that, please, Bethany. There is the outside of that church. Pastor Tommy Nelson is an amazing preacher of God. God used that. God has done amazing things through many preachers. Chuck Swindoll, Alistair Begg. John MacArthur. There, there are some really big works going on out there, folks, that remain true to the kingdom of God. They aren't, just, they aren't just the fake church, if you know what I mean. There are some big works going on out there. They are a rarity. I'll admit that they are, they are a rarity. The, the average church in America, by, by far, is the numbers are, are under 100 in attendance. Most churches in America, the majority are under 100. The vast majority remain under 100, I should say. So big churches could become a discouragement to little churches. Small churches. When I talk big churches, I'm not talking about necessarily the big ones on TV. That's whether or not they're faithful to the Lord of God, you're going to have uh, uh, to determine that. There are enormous theological problems with a lot of really big churches, especially television screen churches, you know. Now they're holding churches on the internet. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you serve your brother or sister in Christ from the internet. Maybe it's through PayPal or something. I have no idea how they accomplish that. But for those examples that are biblically solid, biblically solid, we should not see large churches as a discouragement. But instead, we should be grateful that these mega churches serve to remind us that God is achieving Marvelous works in this day, folks. Marvelous works among these churches that are faithful. It's still slow growing. I, I know even Denton Bible there. It's been, it took 45 years to get where they are now. It started out as a small college group that believed in what was unseen And they prayed to the Lord God. They served one another. They loved the kingdom as we are to love. And they asked God to do something amazing. It's not about a building. We know that. But it is amazing what God has done amongst those people there. God is powerful. The kingdom is powerful. And He will accomplish great things as He so wills. But we have to be willing to engage that which is invisible, folks. We have to be willing to see the kingdom that is unseen. Do we really believe God is doing big things through His Spirit? I believe we do. We need to be reminded He can do much bigger, much bigger things. Uh, Because there was a large group surrounding Zerubbabel. When that foundation of the second temple was laid... It was a mixed group. A mixed group of two different attitudes. The older Levites, they had seen Solomon's first temple. They wept. They were demoralized. Oh, so much smaller than the previous temple. But they were not the only ones present on that day, folks. There were many more who were so young they had never seen the first temple. Let me read to you from Ezra 3 verse 10 Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel they sang and praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all of the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. There's a lot of shouting, a lot of noise. Two different attitudes. Said, Yet many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' households, the old men, who had seen the first temple they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes they're like ufta meanwhile many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people for the sh- people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far away do you see the difference The entire group was looking at the same foundation. The larger group, they were the ones rejoicing in something invisible. They hadn't seen the temple. They hadn't seen how God could build. What did they see? They saw a foundation. They said, well, here we have a foundation to build. They trusted God to accomplish what he said in his word he would accomplish. And the temple that they were commanded to build would eventually become a house in which the man of God, the Son of God, the Holy Christ would walk. How's that for a temple? Would you like to be involved with that project? What glory. What glory. To be able to to put stones on top of that foundation in honor to God and know that Christ would dwell there. That he would walk in. Similar folks, we have a foundation. We have a foundation as the kingdom of God is one of his local foundations as a church. As there are many good churches out there of every size and every color and every type. But we have a foundation. It's firmly set upon the rock of Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 20 says, His church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This temple is being built. You can even help build it or you can decide not. You can rejoice and shout with praise or you can weep. You can't see it. God's word says it is being built. It is growing. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And like Zerubbabel's contemporaries, what we don't see, we know God has promised to build. And he will finish it. He will finish it. What did the prophet Haggai tell that generation, staring at that foundation? Haggai chapter 2 says, Take courage. And all you people of the land take courage, declares the Lord, and work. How is a temple going to get built without people working? Work, says Haggai. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. foundation is laid, folks time to work Haggai prepared that generation to work Zerubbabel called that generation to work and God used it all for his glory churches that will not pray will not grow churches that will not evangelize will not grow churches where members will not serve and share the load will not grow But we have faith in that which is not yet seen. You have to be able to see the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is powerful. It's an influence that grows slowly, but it always grows. It always grows until it becomes really big. Verse 21, final comments. The image of three pecks of flour. (laughs) Folks, that's not just a loaf. That's not just a loaf that, that that lady put in a measure of leaven. It's estimated that three pecks of flour would feed 160 people. That's one big wad of bread. The point is, it's going to be big. It's going to grow slow. We know what the influence is, but it's going to be big. God's calling everyone to take part in building the kingdom. And any question why the apostles gave their lives and died the expansion of this kingdom they could see it, they could see it, so can we. let's pray, Lord, oh Father, you are so amazing in uh, Lord shaping your kingdom, in uh, bringing in disciples and Lord choosing them just according to your will, all different colors and shapes and sizes different. Different uh, career paths, Lord. You use all kinds of different people to just make a beautiful temple. Lord, and as we look at one another here uh, today in this church, this congregation, we see each other and, and we marvel at the wonderful things that you have done. And Lord, in the name of Christ, you've brought us together for this local church. Lord, as you build your eternal church and your kingdom, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for every person here today. Bless them as they leave. Encourage them in your word and in the spirit, Lord. And Lord, bless our week. In the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen.